Thank you for today. I know this has been mentioned a couple times already today, but we thank you for the moms in our congregation, the moms you gave to raise us. I pray for those today who have it tough today, whether because of loss or regret or um, any, any other reason. We pray that you would be near to them. Uh, we pray that you would um, give joy uh, to all, all the moms and mother figures for all their service uh, in pouring into raising the next generation. We thank you for the grace that you have upon each and every one of us, the power and the strength that you give to each and every one of us to do what you have called us to do. We thank you for your word that even when things are the most difficult and it takes everything in us to do what we need to do on an, on an everyday basis, we can turn to your word for strength and power because in these words are life. In these words are, are your power. And we turn to them once again. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In an article published on a popular news website just a couple of weeks ago, there was recapped a, the story of an actual incident that happened recently. A 39-year-old man is planning a destination wedding with his 38-year-old fiancé at a winery in another state. At the same time, the father of the man passed away back in January of this year, and left a family heirloom, presumably worth five figures, to this man in his will. Both he and his fiancée work stable, well-paying jobs, but because they claim they don't plan on having kids and passing anything along to them, and this upcoming wedding will be the most important occasion in their lives, the man sold this family heirloom to pay for this extravagant wedding. Because he did this, his, fam his family is now divided, and about half of them are now refusing to even attend the wedding, which was the whole reason the man sold the heirloom in the first place. <laughs> of course, because this is the day and age we live in, the man took to Reddit to vent about the fallout from this, which prompted even internet strangers to start giving their two cents on the situation, because that's the day and time we live in. This is obviously a divisive situation and topic with, if I took a vote right now, would probably divide the room with if this guy had the right to do what he did and if his family has the right to respond the way he did. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to divide the room. But in our passage this morning, someone else has a family heirloom that she uses in the most worthwhile and priceless way. From this, we'll see how valuable Jesus is to us with everything we are and have. We left Jesus last week knowing that the authorities had put a warrant out for his arrest, and knowing that it still wasn't quite time yet for him to be arrested, according to God the Father's plan, Jesus withdrew to a less populated area near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. 
This move to Ephraim was only a short while before the Passover of his crucifixion, so he probably was there for only a couple of months, if that. That whole time Jesus was gone from the area, immediately around Jerusalem, like we talked about last week, the crowds pouring into Jerusalem to start getting ready for the Passover are passing around gossip about Jesus and the authorities' warrant for his arrest like wildfire. And like we talked about last week, there was a reason for this in God's plan. He used it to have as many of his people scattered across the ancient Mediterranean world to hear about his son and therefore hear about his crucifixion and then his resurrection. As the news about Jesus is spreading like wildfire in Jerusalem leading up to the Passover, Jesus was purposely not there. But now, in this morning's passage, Jesus returns to the area. He doesn't return to Jerusalem just yet, but he returns to the very place where his last major public miracle took place. He returns to Bethany to spend a little time with the family that he loved and the man whom he had just commanded to walk out of the tomb he had been dead in for four days to come out. From this experience in Bethany that we're discussing this morning, Jesus will send two of his disciples to take a donkey and her colt for him to ride through the gates of Jerusalem while the crowds already losing their minds about him in Jerusalem start pouring out of the city with palm branches and shouting Hosanna. But for now, at this point, let's see what happens during this experience that Jesus returns to the hometown of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus at in Bethany. So, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 12. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 12 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 12, we're going to be, start in the first two verses here, verses 1 through 2. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. As noted by one biblical scholar, the Gospel of Mark, in recording the same event, explains that this was not the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, but the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper is only mentioned in Mark's recording of this event in Mark 14, in Matthew's account in Matthew 26. There is no other mention of him in Scripture. As one biblical scholar pointed out, Simon the leper must not have been a leper anymore at that point, or else no one would have stepped foot in his house, much less eaten around him. And while not mentioned anywhere in Scripture, he may have already been healed by Jesus a while before this. Regardless, the party is at Simon, the former leper's house. Simon opened up his home, and Martha served the food. The description of Lazarus reclining at the table indicates that this was a special occasion banquet dinner in Jesus' honor. As you've perhaps seen elsewhere, tables in this place and culture were very low to the ground, and people would sit on cushions on the floor around it. Common, everyday meals were eaten while sitting, and special banquets in VIP's honor were eaten while reclining. 
Now, all of a sudden, the attention is directed towards Mary. We've had the opportunity to get to know Mary as well as Martha a little bit better as we dug through everything leading up to and including Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Martha, if you remember, could be considered one of your type A bootstraps, responsible, practical people. Mary, on the other hand, was a very sensitive, heartfelt, contemplative, emotional person. While Martha may have been able to hide her emotions, comparatively anyway, Mary was one who wore her heart on her sleeve. You knew exactly how she felt at any given time. And we see this played out exactly here too, verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now there are a few things we should know about what just happened here, this whole event. Firstly, what exactly was this perfume that Mary pours onto Jesus' feet? This was known as spikenard, or pure nard, and you might see that word in your translation of the Bible. Most likely an oil extracted from the roots of a plant that grew in India on the Himalayan mountains. It was similar to an essential oil we use today, in that it had a very strong and very distinctive aroma. Since the process of creating spikenard was so involved, it was incredibly expensive. One biblical scholar described its worth today as a Tiffany diamond or the purest gold to us uh, in, in, in our time and culture today. In the NASB, the unit of measurement used here is translated as a pound, which I just read. But this was the Roman pound, which equaled to 12 ounces. And since, uh, since we're talking about an oil here, we're going to talk about in ounces. When you buy an essential oil today, especially the hardest sourced ones, you buy a tiny one-twelfth to one-third of an ounce, right? And you think to yourself, is this even worth it? <laughs> the amount of spikenard oil Mary had was an amount equal to a can of soda. Twelve ounces, now drop down to verse 5. How much was this worth? Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? And we all immediately understood the worth of this, right? 300 denarii? Some of you are nodding your heads. <laughs> we'll have a conversation about this afterwards. All right. 300 denarii at this time was worth an entire year's worth of wages. An entire year's worth of wages. Imagine if you had an entire year's worth of your salary just stashed away in your savings account. Obviously, salaries vary today, whereas the common day laborers back then uh, all made about the same. But it was, as noted by one biblical scholar, a person's entire life savings. That's what we're talking about here. Pure nard was imported only in jars or boxes made from alabaster stone. Does this look like it's easily opened from somewhere? Do you see an opening here? No, and there's a purpose for that. In, in fact, these alabaster jars were created in such a way that they could only be opened 
by breaking or smashing them open. In fact, Mark's account outright says that Mary broke or shattered the jar to get to its contents. Once the jar was broken, you had to use all the contents immediately and all at once, or it would lose its potency and aroma. As such, these alabaster jars of pure nard were only ever broken and used for the highest of special occasions. Think those occasions that are once in a lifetime. Most often they were reserved for weddings, as Song of Solomon references that the bride's pure nard used at the wedding reception represented the unrivaled love and passion the bride and groom had for each other. Because of this connection and the mind-boggling monetary worth of this alabaster box, many biblical scholars have speculated that this one referenced in particular was Mary's only inheritance from her parents, as most likely the dowry given to her by her parents for her to use to get married someday. That's huge to know, isn't it? For it tells us this was undoubtedly 100% Mary's only earthly valuable in her life. The only thing she had. Not only was it Mary's only earthly valuable, but it was the only item she had that ensured she would have a shot at a worthwhile marriage. The most important thing a woman had to look forward to in that time and culture. But what did Mary do with it? Hoard it for that very purpose? Refuse to let it go? Use it for her own comfort and happiness? Not at all. What did she do with it? She gave it to Jesus. Why? She gave it to Jesus out of the overwhelming gratitude she had for him, raising her brother back to life. The amount of crushing emotion we talked about a few weeks ago that Mary showed by collapsing at Jesus' feet because of Lazarus' death is rivaled only by the joy and gratitude she displays in this very tangible, real way. Not only did Mary give away all she had of any earthly value in her life to Jesus to show her gratitude to him, but she also did what? After she poured all of this oil on Jesus' feet, she then used the ends of her long hair to wipe it all over his feet. It was highly risque for a married woman to uncover her hair in the presence of other men in that culture. But even though Mary was, was most likely unmarried at this point, since only her siblings are ever mentioned along with her and never a husband, her action would still raise some eyebrows among those gathered there, but Mary did not care. She wanted to show Jesus in whatever way she could how thankful she was for all he had done for her and her family. No doubt those closest to Mary, namely Martha and Lazarus, along with Jesus, understood what she was doing and what she was saying with it. But there were some who were confused 
And there were some who were even angry about what they had just witnessed. Verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why is this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Nice guy. We saw Mary's thoroughly unselfish sacrifice on one hand, and now we see the flip side of this. In Judas' response, only of ultimately selfish greed. Mary was only thinking about Jesus. Judas was only thinking about Judas. Judas was only thinking about bettering himself. Mark notes in his account, as has been pointed out, that the other disciples quickly pick up on Judas' words of criticism towards Mary and join in on providing their admonishment towards her so-called foolishness. It's very easy for the mob mentality to take over a situation, especially when all the facts aren't known yet, isn't it? We see it today, and it was no different 2,000 years ago. Jesus, instead of joining in with his disciples' rebuke of Mary, turns around and rebukes their short-sightedness and lack of understanding of what she had really just done, verses 7 through 8. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Some people will think that Jesus was belittling giving to those in need or promoting poverty, but that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 15.11, which says, for the poor will not cease to exist in the land. Jesus is basically quoting that part verbatim here. Therefore, I am commanding you, saying, you shall fully open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. That's what Jesus is getting at. What we see here is, what God, is that God is telling the Israelites that as we live in a broken world, and we will always live in a broken world until Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, there will always be cases that, re, that render people lacking for their basic needs. There will always be those cases. As such, we must always be generous to help alleviate their needs. As God is generous with us, we must be generous with others. And so Jesus is not downplaying what the pure nard could have been used for in helping those with earthly needs. For just as there will always be needs that can be helped, there will always be ways God gives to provide for those needs. But here in this specific situation, there was something uniquely special happening as it pertained to him personally. As noted by one biblical scholar, Mary most likely did not intend with what she did to what Jesus ultimately connects it fulfilling here. She wanted to show her overwhelming gratitude to Jesus for what he had done for Lazarus and therefore her and the rest of her family. But Jesus here shows that what she did was ultimately in anticipation of his imminent burial. 
The word it in verse 7 is referring to the burial custom of the day. Immediately after death, the body of a loved one would be covered in oil and then washed with water. And so Jesus points out that Mary is ultimately anointing him with the priceless oil as a foreshadowing of the process that would take place immediately after his death when he would be buried. This gift by Mary, knowing what awaited him only a few days later, meant something exceptionally personal to Jesus that no one else on earth would or even could understand. One biblical scholar pointed out that because the spikenard oil was so pure, the scent of it would have clung to Jesus' skin for a long time. As such, and I quote from this, as he felt the whip lacerate his flesh, as he felt the nails pierce his hands and feet, he could also inhale the fragrance of that gift of spikenard and remember why he was doing this. Mary's gift may have strengthened and encouraged him even throughout his horrific ordeal as its strong scent still clung to his skin. End quote. Wow. That's why it meant so much to Jesus. Not only was it the very best Mary could ever offer to him, but it would be a source of personal strength and encouragement to him as he went through all he had to endure to get to the point of being buried. He knew what his purpose of his first advent was. To obey God the Father, as Philippians says, even to the point of death on a cross. And to, out of his love, provide a way for sinful humans like us to be restored to God and be given eternal life. In order to breathe his last, die, be buried, and thus complete his mission of sacrifice, he first had to go through the torture and the crucifixion. The scent of burial and being finished with his mission could have filled him with the strength and his humanity to keep going as his body was racked with excruciating pain and the blood flowed down his body. Mary's act and Jesus' connection to its ultimate fulfillment is yet one more prophecy of Jesus to anyone who would listen and understand that he would die and be buried very, very soon. In fact, only a mere six days later from this point. This is the very last event in John's account of Jesus' ministry before all of the events directly connected to Holy Week, starting with the triumphal entry. Uh, th 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 this is the very last event we talked about today, and we'll start on the triumphal entry when we pick up next. But for now, we can clearly see a very powerful point here, can't we? In context, Jesus connected Mary's offering to his coming burial. 
but to Mary, showing her gratefulness to Jesus for all he had done for her, was astronomically more important to her than any amount of earthly wealth could provide. That's what connects us to today. Firstly, the most obvious connection is how we're viewing and using the monetary finances God has given to us. Some of you are thinking, man, I picked the wrong Sunday to be here. (laughs) You guys know I very, very rarely talk about this. But this text, as we see clearly, providentially lends itself perfectly to this subject. This is the overall mindset and heart set that Mary had that we have to have as well. Everything we have in this earth comes from God. It's his to begin with, and he entrusts it to us to glorify him. When both King David and the leaders of all the people of Israel gave willingly of their riches to adorn the temple that Solomon would build, David recognized and vocalized this truth when he prayed. He said, Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth. Yours is the dominion, Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given back to you. This is the overall mindset we must have with what God has entrusted to us. When God set aside the Levites, to not own any land in the promised land, but to devote themselves to full-time service in the tabernacle before God, he provided for their needs by the rest of Israel, giving a tithe or a word transliterated into the English that literally means a tenth to those who served God and served the people in the tabernacle full-time. Some will disagree with me on this. But we can also clearly see the tithe principle carried over into the New Testament as a means for supporting God's work and those who serve him in that work full time. While personally not taking advantage of it, while asserting his right to to, uh, be financially supported by the churches he helped plant, the Apostle Paul wrote, who at any time serves as a soldier at at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not consume some of the milk of the flock? I am not just asserting these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law not say these things as well? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking entirely for our sake? 
Then Paul says, yes, it was written for our sake because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. What is Paul directly appealing to here in order to support his argument for for financial support? He's appealing to the Old Testament law and specifically the part referring to the tithe, the tenth, from the rest of Israel given in support of those who proclaim the gospel full time. So, There is evidence for the tithe principle from the Old Testament law being carried over into the New Testament and today as the means God has provided for his church to be supported. Don't tune me out yet, all right? Stay with me. Now, what should we give a tenth of? In the Old Testament, the tenth was to be given of the Israelites' first fruits, that's what we read, or those from their crops and livestock that were the best they had. The best they had goes hand in hand. Sounds very familiar from what we just talked about today, right? The same mentality that Mary had in our passage this morning. And why shouldn't we give the best of what we have back to God? It's all his to begin with, right? And like Mary, we too have so much to be grateful to God for. Amen? For the most part, today, we don't live in an agrarian society, so how does this first fruits concept translate to today? Again, I want to be sensitive, but I'm not pulling any of this out of thin air. I'm putting the words from the Bible up on the screen here. It's, it's all biblical. This first fruits slash best of what we have concept translates today to the gross figure of what we receive as income. Social security, retirement fund, disability, or paycheck. We biblically take that gross figure, calculate what a tenth or 10% of that is, and give it back to God. Again, as his to begin with, and as his anyway, in a systematically regular way, to support his work through the local body of Christ. And before anyone starts throwing any stones at me, (laughs) think about the beauty of the tithe principle. Is it a set figure? No. It's a percentage so that it's relative to whatever God has given to us as income, and it looks different for every person. Now, one might respond with, but I thought Paul also said each one must do as he uh, has, there it is, each one must do just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I would say, yes, you're right. He did, and that is also true. How? Because in the context of 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about something different there. 
In this context, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is trying to convince the Corinthian church, as well as others that are more well-off, to raise up an offering above and beyond their tithe to help out the impoverished Jerusalem church. And so for that special offering, not their tithe, but above and beyond their tithe, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Make sense? Okay. The same applies to today. The New Testament tithe principle is just a starting point to keep us consistent in showing our gratitude back to God since we're human and we seem to forget. <laughs> Above and beyond our tithe, we should also be readily given to other needs, generously as Jesus referenced, such as the needy in our communities and around the world, other gospel-oriented organizations and works, and other missionaries who are spreading the gospel around the world. The above and beyond giving is what we call offerings, when we say tithes and offerings. Again, out of the same heart of gratitude, that Mary had. There are other ways we can show God our love and gratitude to him by giving back to him what is his anyway. The financial aspect is the most obvious one in connection with this morning's passage. But God's word also speaks of the talents, skills, and spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit has given to us. All of those are to be given back in service to God, since he's the one who gave them to us in the first place. The time we have is also what God has given to us in the first place and should also be given back to him in service to his kingdom. Both in the 2 Corinthians 9 passage about generous offerings in the giving of our tithe, and in the giving of our talents, skills, spiritual gifts, time, and resources, the heart and mindset is always to be the same. Generosity back to God out of love for him and out of overwhelming gratitude for all he has done in our lives and all he does for us on a daily basis. Really, our giving back to him is just as much of an act of worship as singing praises and living our lives in accordance with his word. We can see this clearly in what Mary did for Jesus, and we see that clearly throughout the rest of God's word. If what we give back to God is his to begin with, that he's simply entrusting to us to use for his glory, here's another question. Should we be fearful that he's somehow not, somehow not going to give us enough to do what we should do with it? Should we be fearful about that? If it's all his to begin with, and it's his direction as to what we should do with it, should we ever be fearful that he's somehow not going to give us enough to do what he wants us to do with it? Of course not. Let's think about it in simple, childlike faith. Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians, speaking directly about finances that we give back to God, now I say this, 
the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. A lot of people like to use this in multiple other situations, but the immediate context of this is financial. And the one who sows generously will also reap generously. And God is able to make all grace. Again, this isn't just general grace. This is financial grace. All grace overflow to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, all your needs are taken care of, you may have an abundance for every good deed. I'd say that's pretty clear encouragement to be as generous as we can be back to God and banish the fear of not having enough, right? We like to overcomplicate everything, though. This is very clear. It's very simple. It requires childlike faith. It's very clear. Again, it's rare that I speak on this topic, but whenever I do, You guys know I'm not a prosperity preacher. I always bring up this point as well. While this is not to be our motivation in being generous back to God, never underestimate how God might bless you when you follow his word in this area. Never underestimate that. Malachi 3.10 tells us, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great, you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. This is the only time and topic in all of God's word where God commands us to put him to the test. The only time. That should tell us something. Amen? And no doubt, many of you sitting here watching this online later have stories where you followed God in this area for years and you've witnessed him come through for you with needed provision in mighty, indescribable ways. Again, this isn't to be our motivation, but never underestimate what God might do in our lives when we make the decision to obey him in this area and be generous with what he gives to us because it's his anyway. Mary gave the only item she had of any worth in her earthly life to Jesus out of her love for him and thankfulness for all he had done for her. How much more should we be generous with what earthly and spiritual gifts God has given to us? God's word tells us that one of the clearest indications of the state of our heart before God is how we view our finances and how we're using them before God. Jesus himself said that how we view and use what God has given to us shows us, it's a litmus test, it shows us how much we really do love God and how much we really still love the world. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, not my words. Words straight from Jesus. Where your treasure is, what you're doing with it, and how you view it, that's where your heart is. And that reveals where your heart is. We all have to ask ourselves the question, and be completely honest with ourselves, because God knows our heart, and God knows everything that we've got going on in our hearts. Even when we try to excuse away things and justify things, God still knows so why try to fool him with anything? We all have to ask ourselves the question and be completely honest with ourselves. And not just ask the question, but do something about it. Where is my heart? Where is my heart? Where is my treasure? Is it invested in the eternal work of God's kingdom? Or is it invested in myself? That directly shows where our heart really is. Where is my heart? Am I giving my best to Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this difficult, this sensitive topic, but one that is in your word and one we must talk about. Something that is clearly connected to what our passage was this morning anyway. We thank you for this prime example of what Mary did towards you in showing her overwhelming love for you and overwhelming gratitude for all you had done for her and her family in raising Lazarus from the dead by giving you everything she had of any earthly value, pouring it out on your feet, wiping it with her hair. And Lord, you knew how meaningful that was to you personally when you then hung up on the cross and the faint whiffs of that still rose up to your nostrils. Lord, I pray that the tithes and offerings that we give to you would be just as pleasing of an aroma to you as that scent was and as the offerings the Israelites gave to you were. I pray that we would, we would ask ourselves the hard questions. Really take a hard, honest look at, at our heart, at what we're doing with our finances, at what we're giving back to you, because it's all yours anyways to begin with. Are we honoring you with what you have given to us? I pray that if there's difficult decisions that need to be made, we would do them in the courage and boldness of the Holy Spirit, not fearing that you wouldn't take care of our needs, because as we just read in the New Testament, you will always give enough for our needs and always enough for us to be generous as well. Lord, I pray we would put our childlike faith in you in that area as well, just as we do in every other area. And if there are difficult decisions we need to make, I pray that we would make those so that we would honor you truly in every area of our lives. We thank you for Mary. We thank you for what she did. We thank you for what that points to us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.